they don't consider themselves a product, a car, a handbag, or a service, okay? A travel, a hotel stay, but they want to be something more to you. They want to go above and beyond being a product or service. They want to acquire and represent meaning that goes far beyond that. What's up, brand new experts? Arek here at Design, and on today's podcast, I have two guests, Wolfgang Schaeffer and JP Kulvein. So starting with Wolfgang, he is the founder and CEO of 12 Consulting, a company focused on developing narrative brand strategies. And so Wolfgang has been uh, building global brands for over 25 years in Europe, the United States and Asia Pacific for companies like PepsiCo, P&G, Unilever, Coty, Nestle, WWF and many more. And so his main expertise lies in growing prestige brands and companies such as LVMH, which is Louis Vuitton, Davidoff, Chopard, Swarovski, and many others. Now, JP is a global brand and business leader and recognized strategy expert. He's the co-founder and CEO of Uber Brands Consulting here in New York. He has also over two decades of hands-on experience in creating successfully or recreating big brands. So before that, JP served as a managing director of global strategy and innovation at Procter & Gamble. So both of these guys are also professors and teachers, and they've also co-authored a couple of books together. And one of them is Brand Elevation, Lessons in Uber Branding, which is the book right here. And this is the book we are going to talk about on today's podcast. So welcome, guys, Wolfgang and JP. Thanks for joining us today. It's our pleasure. Our pleasure. Hi, Okay, so basically, you've got a lot of experience, guys. You co combined over 50 plus years. Uh, well, in, in older than we are. <laughs> in, bu in building we are brands. also over 50 plus years, so that works out well. <laughs> so, that, so that all makes sense. Um, so, and it pertains to all categories and countries, right? So, so you've come to the realization that there are certain principles that are applied to building prestige brands right and so you've discussed some of them in your first book but in this book you also present us with your six-step program so that's what's new about this book so you still discuss those principles seven principles but you also give us like a step-by-step -step program step-by-step -step process so you can actually implement those and you still give us a lot of examples and so on so we're going to talk about that in a second so i just wanted to start with something very basic you know explaining to our audience uh, what is Uber branding? And, and just maybe you can guys give us an overview of those principles so that we are on the same page. So uh, for those who didn't read the previous book, so uh, what's the idea behind Uber branding and what are those seven principles? Um, Wolfgang, should I take a shot at this part? Uh, yeah, yeah, any one of you. Yeah. Go ahead. So I always tell my students, Uber brands is there first and foremost to annoy, particularly the Americans who are not able to pronounce Uber. But that's just the superficial reason. No, we got to the name, if you want to talk about the name, because after talking to quite a few of these brands, and we'll have examples throughout, Wolf and I noticed that they have one thing in common, which is they don't consider themselves a product, a car, a handbag, or a service, okay? A travel, a hotel stay but they want to be something more to you. They want to go above and beyond being a product or service. They want to 
acquire and represent meaning that goes far beyond that. And that's reminded us of Nietzsche and his concept of the Übermensch, of the somebody who is able to break out of the daily grind and the day-to-day and kind of achieve more, bring humanity forward, if you like. And a lot of these brands have this ambition, have this mission, and have a myth that goes far beyond what they have to offer from a functional or utilitarian uh, perspective. And that's pretty much what Uber branding is all about, is how do you create a brand that goes beyond its category, its industry, its functional offering? I mean, in, the, in, in a nutshell, the first book was called Rethinking Prestige, and that's exactly what it was, because Uber Brands for us is just another term for a modern, for brands that represent a modern understanding of prestige branding. So that traditionally it was much more driven by the classic luxury excuse, you know, where you had to kind of like be scarce, you had to create this numbers of rarity, you had to be connected to very exclusive um, locations and influencers or spokespeople, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a lot of outer show that created this idea of elevation. Um, and now it's coming much more from the inside out. So the brands, the modern prestige brands, A, they're not bound to classic luxury categories like cars or accessories, watches, et cetera, jewelry, but they can grow in every, in any category, like think of Airbnb, for instance, but more importantly, they're much more driven from the inside rather than from the outside. So they have a conviction, as JP was saying, a mission that they try to put out into the world and that they live by and that they hold above, uh, above all. And that's, that's what really connects them to the Uber idea of Nietzsche. Now, we are going to take a quick break here, but we'll be right back. Listen, my mission is to help people design iconic brands. So whether you're a business leader who wants to be more intentional with branding and all of its aspects, or you're a creative professional who wants to attract powerful clients and truly be able to help them succeed with branding, then you need to start with a discovery session in order to develop a strategy that will inform all of your creative work. And everything that you need to learn how to do that, you can find in my online courses at ebigdesign.com slash shop, where I share with you my worksheets, case studies, video tutorials, and other additional resources to help you feel safe and strong about your process. Now let's get back to our interview. Right. So Uber means in German above and beyond, right? So um, that's what JP mentioned and... and uh, Vogan elaborated on that. So basically, brands that, you know, it's not about just products and services, it's going beyond that and acquiring that meaning beyond the material, right? Beyond products and services. So can we just give an overview to our listeners of those seven principles? Maybe JP can start with a few and then Vogan, you can uh, talk about a few more. So starting with uh, Mission Incomparable, just like a high level overview before we go to you know to the actual program so that we understand the concept maybe some examples as well sure mission incomparable is the first one like you say and mission or call it purpose or the why when we started to find this as a common denominator and that was by now a good 10 years ago probably it was not the discussion we're having now now everyone is talking about purpose but it's also important to note that It's not necessarily about the purpose that everyone's talking about today, the brand purpose, which is usually defined as either having a social mission or an ecological mission. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. we certainly found those brands, let's say Patagonia, for example, or Ben and Jerry's, which have an ecological, yeah. in the case of Patagonia or Ben and Jerry's, a social mission since its founding through the founders, which is an important mission. But we found other brands that feel uh, they have a higher calling that is not necessarily associated with that. So, for example, let's take the quote-unquote mundane Red Bull. Literally there, the mission is to give you wings. They happen to have it in their tagline as well. But basically, the, the human dream of giving you wings, letting you do what you dream to do, okay? Giving you superhuman powers, if you want to stay within that framework of Uber branding. So the mission can be anything. It doesn't have to be ecological or sociological, but it's basically a calling that goes way beyond, like you say, the material. So that is the mission. And as you can see from the Red Bull example, also connected to what we call the myth, something that is the kind of meta narrative, the meta story uh, that goes way beyond a simple factual story and that you associate with this brand that it makes it so interesting. A lot of the luxury brands live, you know, by having this mystique around them. Think of Chanel, for example. So there is this almost left brain and right brain element of mission and myth that are quite central to this concept, for example. Yeah, that was those were the two core um, principles, number one okay. and number four. But then there's um, also ways on how they engage their targets or how they define their targets first and foremost, but then also how they engage with them. So not just like how they how they set themselves up, but how they deal with others. And there is, um, you find traditional luxury brands, as we said earlier, were very much built on, on building kind of like a divide, you know, like a distance between the buyer and the brand, putting the brand on a high pedestal so that it's hard to kind of even, like everybody knows the famous situation from Julia Roberts trying to go shopping on Rodeo Drive and not being let into the not into let into the shops because she's a prostitute, and that that was kind of some symbolic for for the way traditional prestige was built. These days, you find they engage their audiences much more, and they have to because we're living in the digital age. Everybody can approach everything. Everybody can go on a Louis Vuitton website. You don't need to mm -hmm. live in Paris, and you don't need to have like five thousand dollars in your pocket. You know, everybody can do it. So they were forced to find different ways of still building this mystique and this distance, something making aspiration, while at the same time being more or less forced to be ubiquitous and, and easily accessible by everybody, mm -hmm. which would kind of bring them down. And they've found very interesting ways by doing that, by tiering, for instance, different levels of access. Uh, you find that on Netaporté, or you find it in, in, in these days, almost in every brand, you find how they play very openly a VIP access area that only special people can gain entry to, but that is played out very openly so that those that don't get access still aspire to become one day one of those VIP access people. And, and basically, like, and then we call that long to belonging or the velvet mm -hmm. rope. It's nothing different than what, what um, Studio 54 did way back in the 80s when they built the, the velvet rope in front of the club or whatever every good club these days does. You know, kind of like building an aura of aspiration and mystique by not letting everybody in, but showing people, those people that do get in. That's number mm -hmm. one. And uh, th that, I think, is another key one. And then um, the other is also how to sustain and substantiate the myth and the mission. 
So it's not no longer okay to just build a lifestyle around a product. You need to really live it through all your products and services. Um, so be, be again, being very much built inside out. So um, building your entire organization, ideally, the culture of your brand or your company, and the experiences that people have in, in their flagship stores, et cetera, all the way down to the services, the, the parts, the replacement parts, et cetera, that can be get. So really live your mission and substantiate it again and again, uh, because nothing, nothing is going to kill you faster than if you build the dream, but then it pops in a nanosecond because people realize it's just another handbag that falls apart as easily mm-hmm. as, um, as any other. Hermes is your classic example that, that really um, lives on, on standards of quality and craftsmanship and sustainability, like sustainability as, as the ultimate luxury for things that last over a long time. And, um, mm-hmm. right. and it extends, I think what's important and what's often overlooked is it extends way beyond the product and goes to the organization. I mean, more and more, there's total transparency because of the internet on what does the company actually do? What is its culture? How does it treat its employees? How does it treat suppliers? Uh, Does it pay its bills? Uh, Does it, you know, leverage fair trade and so on and so on. So all of this nowadays also flows into the total gestalt, if you like, in the customer's mind of how they're viewing a brand like that and becomes important. Mm-hmm. So it's a holistic approach, right? So I just wanted to go over those principles real quick. So JP started with Mission Incomparable, which is, you know, as the name suggests, having a distinct mission. And as you mentioned, it, it could be something about sustainability. It could be something about, you know, helping the planet or helping people, but it doesn't have to. So it, it just needs to be some higher calling, you know, or you can disrupt a category. You know, you guys describe a lot of different ways in which we can, you know, find that mission and define it. So, and then you mentioned also it connects to the fourth principle, which is about the myth, right? So you need to give the brand a soul and craft those narratives to be able to engage people. And then Wolfgang was talking about a few different principles like longing and belonging which is the second principle so balancing this this exclusivity with inclusion and he gave us an example of of some luxury brands right so there are a few a few other principles like unselling so mastering the art of seduction rather than just outright uh, sales you know loud sales and pitches that's another principle behold the product so making your product manifest that myth so that's what you guys were talking about as well so it's a holistic approach it's also about the culture another principle is living the dream so again we have a, a transparency now and it's really about you know actually acting you know on those principles and leaving them because you know uh, people can find out sooner or later about your culture because nowadays everything is so transparent right you cannot really hide much so seventh principle is about growth without end so how to scale up how to expand your business without losing that soul that was defined earlier right so you divided your book in three parts so basically in the first part you discuss those principles and give us some examples so in the second part you talk about how to actually do it right how to put those principles into action so basically we've been testing this program for over five years 
right? And you've came up with this uh, six-step program. So I just wanted to spend a few minutes to talk about those steps, some of these steps, right? So basically, the framework is divided into three phases, right? As the name suggests, dream, do, and dare. And there are two steps in each phases, right? So dream is about defining that mission and then writing your myth. And then do, the second part of the framework is about realizing that dream and about living it in everything you do. And then daring, the, the, the third part is about finding your fans and target who will, you know, ignite and igniting all people, all stakeholders to create kind of a movement, right? So can you guys maybe talk about, give us like a high level overview of those six steps of your brand elevation program? I think the overarching difference of what's new about this brand building program versus the traditional ones is that you don't start with the market, analyzing the market and your potential targets and what they're missing and then catering to that, but rather starting with you. What do you dream of? And that's why the first phase is called dream. What is it that you believe as a brand or as a company that is missing in today's world? Then developing that and then finding your fans and build them around them. Of course, you still need to make sure that whatever you do has relevance for the market of today and for your audiences. But you sometimes need to be or you very often prestige brands need to be a bit ahead of time in order to lead. And if you start with your with just analyzing the situation currently, you only come to answers of the current uh, and you don't come to answers of the future. But that's exactly what prestige brands today have to do. So prestige brands really start with developing their mission independent, first and foremost, of the current market situation. And that's very new. That's why we're starting with dream. The do then is exactly what we decided earlier and talked about, that um, it's very much important that you first and foremost think about how you set up your organization, your production, and ultimately your services and your product in order to develop on it, to deliver on that mission. And only in the third, that's the whole do aspect. And then in the third part only, in the um, there, is when you start going into communication. And that is very different from traditional marketing, which goes straight into communication. When you develop a go-to-market plan, you don't spend much time about getting all the details right in your production, in your, in your supply chain, in your organizational setup, in your packaging, in your distribution, blah, blah, blah. You worry first and foremost, let's think about a campaign. Let's think about how we communicate the brand. In our mm -hmm. model, that comes at the very end. Because first, you need to get all your I's dotted and your T's crossed to a level of detail that is way beyond the average and lives up to your mission. I think the, in the first step of defining your dream, you need to be almost like a archaeologist or anthropologist, etc., and look at your own organization, your own brand, your history. If you don't have history in your startup, at your motivations and literally your dream, in order to make sure that is anchored within what you actually are all about. Because where we find the biggest discrepancy is when it's just a facade, when it becomes quite clear quickly Mm -hmm. that it was created by some outsider, by some consultant, by some agency, but really has nothing to do with what the organization and the product in the end or its service is ultimately about and this, you know, this being disjointed. So that's really one of the big differentiators. Mm -hmm. um, and that also then shows in, in the doing because what is so surprising for 
let's say the mass marketers or those who are artificially quickly building a brand to ultimately selling after uh, sell it after five years for PE or whatever, is that these brands often make decisions that seem not to make commercial sense or at least not have an immediate financial payout. In fact, sometimes it costs them. And to us, that is exactly the kind of proof that they're living up to their mission and that actually endears it to their Uber target, to their fans. A spectacular and easy example to quote is the Patagonia ad, the one ad classic ad that they uh, show in newspapers, which is entitled, Don't Buy This Jacket, okay? Where they explain that the best way of taking care of the environment is not to consume. So we, Patagonia, recommend to you that you first really consider whether you need another garment. And after that, choose ours because, you know, we try to keep mm -hmm. our footprint as low as possible. Which is actually a, a, a principle that they just repeated in a new way this year, this season, by putting out big newspaper ads that are printed as if they were wrapping paper. And they said, like, so first, is, it's the same argument again. Think about if you really need a new product or if you can give, give like, an existing product that you have in your closet to someone else because it's probably still good. And then don't buy wrapping paper and... and put the landfills even more full than they already are, but use the paper that you already have hold in your hands, which is our newspaper ad, and wrap mm -hmm. your, wrap your um, product in that. So all going to the idea of upcycle, recycle, and be mindful of your wastefulness. Right. So they do it in the doing, and then in the daring, it's the same thing. Superficially, very quickly, the brands that are there to kind of shoot to the sky, be purchased, and then you don't care if they flame out because somebody else owns them. What, what they don't succeed in doing is really identifying and exciting and continuing to excite their Uber target, okay? They quickly go to everyone and try to be everything to everyone. Whereas if you, you know, for example, even if you look at an Airbnb, They have people who are incredibly loyal to the idea of Airbnb, of belonging anywhere mm -hmm. you are in the world on both the host side as well as the, as the guest side. And in times of crisis, like recently with the pandemic, Airbnb was very smart and proved that they truly understand their Uber target by saying, you know what? If we're going to jettison parts of the business right now because we are in a very difficult situation, It's not those little passionate uh, mom and pop operators, but it's actually the big ones that we're cutting out. And they did cut out their big chain operators rather than the small offerers. Mm -hmm. And a purely commercial operation without this guiding light of a mission would probably have done exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. That's a great example. That's an awesome example. And so we've covered that pretty much. And I just wanted to show you, show some, uh, some of you for some of you guys, what you can expect from the book. There's a nice breakdown right here of the framework. Uh, so that's what we were talking about right now. And JP and Wolfgang gave us uh, quite a few examples to illustrate that. So as we are approaching the end of our interview, I just wanted to talk a bit more about examples so that we can all relate. So. I have some of my key takeaways here about Starbucks, Airbnb, and YouTube. So you've mentioned some of about Airbnb 
uh, you know, and how they responded to the challenge with pandemic and stuff like that, right? So maybe you guys want to talk to our listeners about a few examples, like, for example, you know, about Starbucks. I think it's a, it's a great example because it's a big brand. Every one of us can relate to those to understand. So, for example, their mission is to inspire and nurture human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. Right. So and the mission also wasn't always fully lived because there was this perception of the quality and price and they were not communicating this, you know, enough about why they are different, you know, how they source their ingredients, you know, how they steward the environment, all those other things. They were not communicating enough about, you know, the, the craft of baristas, you know, and you've pretty much described this in detail in the book, you know, how it actually works, what actions they took, like, for example, organizing barista olympics celebrating barista crowds you know so building that culture from the inside to be able to you know mobilize and have all stakeholders believe in that mission so that it manifests itself to the outside world as as something you know honest and truthful so can you guys talk a, a little bit about that yeah perhaps the first most important thing is to to know and understand that all these um, deep dives in, into seven case studies, it is in total, that we have a deep dive in, was done with um, experts that actually did the job. So mm-hmm. it was, in this case, it was Samantha Yarwood, who was then um, the, the marketing director of Europe for Starbucks and um, and was was running this program and to, to kind of reground the brand. And so it is with all the other case studies. It was always the people responsible. So you get a lot of really behind-the-scenes insights that you normally don't get. But uh, in the case that you're mentioning with uh, Samantha and Starbucks, it was really about Europe because, let's be honest, from a European perspective, Starbucks wasn't anything special. Um, in Italy particularly, but also in France, even to some degree in Germany, and everywhere in Europe, you have much better quality. Vienna, Austria, you have much better uh, level of, of coffee houses and coffee places to buy coffee, which in, traditionally you didn't have in the U.S. So the, the 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 idea of bringing the Italian level of coffee to the U.S. Italy. didn't work in Europe, obviously. <laughs> so they had to find a different. They, they had to kind of get on there put their skates on and, and, and really reinvest in quality and so that they could deliver on the higher level of price that they were and really on their promise ultimately to be ingrained in the neighborhoods and be accepted by all the neighborhoods on a daily basis. The, um, and the, that's, the that's what with, we need. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing with Starbucks is, like Wolfgang says, you know, purely competing on coffee probably doesn't make sense for Starbucks in a European context, okay, because there's enough coffee to go around. If you look at even what Starbucks created in the US, it was this concept, this idea of this cosmopolitan, europolitan third place, but an imaginary place because nobody knew what a skinny venti frappuccino was before Starbucks introduced this language, this space, and this kind of weird cup of coffee. Because if you ask Italians, they're like, this is not coffee, this is a bucket of an American, you know, creation that is kind of interesting to us. So in addition to getting their product up to a standard that would be acceptable for Europeans, or let's say that Europeans would be accustomed to more, um, they also needed to bring out again 
the uniquely Starbucks culture, you know, the uniform, the way of talking, that they call yeah. you by the first name, etc., etc., which would not be, let's say, the German, the Viennese, or the French way of serving up a cup of coffee because you're going to Starbucks for that. It's its own world. It's the world according to Starbucks, as we say in the first book, actually. It's a world according to yourself that you build up and that ultimately you create the desire by people to join at least for that time they go there. That's awesome. That's a, that's a great example. And there is a lot of case studies in the book. So if you guys want to check, of course, I'm going to include the link in the description. But as we are approaching the end of our interview, how can we find more about you? Whether we want to learn more from you for, you know, studios and uh, experts like myself or, you know, perhaps clients who are startups who, who want to find out more about your work, how to find more about you? First and foremost... You already made the first step, buy the book. So we've got two books. One is, if you like, the model and the theory. It's rich in examples that really gives you the mindset. And the other one that you hold in your hand, which is mm -hmm. Brand Elevation, so the first book was Rethinking Prestige Branding, is really meant to be a step-by-step -step guide because we got exactly the same questions you now ask over and over so that after a couple of years, it hit us in the head and I said, we really should have a guide for all these startups and students and so on. And then if you have questions after that, it's easy. Just Uber Brands, impossible to pronounce and know that it's a UE and you will find all the resources because our search engine optimization is truly optimized. <laughs> yeah, for you guys okay, who don't you know, say. is UE, that's the difference between Uber and Uber. Oh, um, yeah. Uber is no Uber nothing brand. to do with Uber. The, no. Uber is the opposite of Uber. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the meaning behind the brand, right? They Origin kind of yes. Originally, that's that's how Uber, and then it was was yes. That's how they started, yeah. and that's that's what inspired them. Unfortunately, yeah. they did not. They they committed the major uh, major mistake that we were talking about. They did not deliver. From a cultural and from a product and service standpoint, they did not deliver on the promise uh, that they set out because they weren't they weren't treating their their people to the level they should and uh, were setting mm -hmm. up a system that was built on exploitation rather than on mobility that raises everybody. But that's a different story that we can gladly talk yeah. about. So they, that's why they're anything but Uber. They may be called Uber, but they're not. <laughs> <laughs> then you go for the next episode. Why Uber is not Uber. Yeah, exactly. Right, that's a that's a great idea. So next time we already have the title for the next episode. Um, so that's awesome. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, it it was my pleasure to have you both on my on my show. I really appreciate that. It was our pleasure again. It's like anytime, gladly again. When we should write book number three latest. Okay, <laughs> cool. Thank you. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Talk See to you, you soon. Bye.